Hi, this is John Dinsmore, Doors Drummer, and this is Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. And his phone started ringing, and my my guitar player, Cliff, was time, he looked down, and he goes, "Uh, I think Paul McCartney's calling you. (laughs) (laughs) So my friend picks up the phone and says, hey, come over. You know, Patty Spike is here with her band, and they just did a show, blah, blah, blah. And so Paul McCartney came over with his wife, Nancy, who's really lovely. And my band was like, it was like watching kindergarten kids. They were, and and I remembered, you know what I mean? It's like, this is freaking Paul McCartney. And this was a big, huge deal. Today's guest is Patti Smythe, an American singer-songwriter who came into national renown with the rock band Scandal before going on to a successful recording career as a solo artist. After growing up in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Garretson Beach, Patty joined Scandal as lead vocalist in 1981. The following year, the band released a self-titled debut EP. Featuring the smash hit song Goodbye to You, it went on to become Columbia Records' biggest selling EP, with Love's Got a Line on You also falling into heavy rotation. In 1984, they put out their follow-up, Warrior, Buoyed by MTV Airplay, the album peaked at number 17 on the U.S. charts, and the first song off the release, also titled The Warrior, was a top 10 hit, followed by Hands Tied and Beat of a Heart. With her distinctive voice and new age look, Patty enjoyed international fame during the MTV era. Her debut solo album, Never Enough, was well received and generated a pair of hits in Downtown Train and the title track. In the early 1990s, she reached the top 10 with the hit single, Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough, a duet with Don Henley of the Eagles. She performed and co-wrote with James Ingram the song, Look What Love Has Done for the 1994 motion picture, Junior. The song not only earned her a Grammy Award nomination, but also an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song. In 2020, she released her latest solo album, It's About Time featuring such standout tunes as Drive and Build a Fire. Welcome, Patty Smythe. Greetings, Patty. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your Beatles origin story. I mean, the Beatles were a huge part of my childhood. and um, I mean, gosh, I don't know. I, you know. There's so many pivotal moments in my life, but my mom decided in 1969 to drive across country in a VW bus with me and my sister, a pregnant cat and a dog. 
And for some reason, we, she was gonna she she ran coffee houses, and she was gonna open a coffee house in San Francisco. That was her idea. And so the only things we had in the car with us was a turntable and two speakers from our. I don't know why. That's what she decided to put in the car with us. But she knew, I guess, that she was trying to tame the savage beasts of me and my sister. And we literally listened to Abbey Road for 3,000 miles for a month going and 3,000 miles for a month coming back. I mean, it took us like a few weeks. to. We probably came home faster. But I'm talking woodshedded the shit out of that record, okay? It's like that's in my DNA for sure. That must have been some in-depth analysis and listening that was going on in that car. It must have made my mother insane. I think, bang, bang, rips, rolls. You know, when you think about it now, and like, it was just like, yeah, could not get enough. Could not get enough. That sounds like the makings of like a great young adult novel. Yeah, it'd be a, it would be a good movie, or it would be, I should write that story. I started writing it because I have written some short stories, but that is, that was crazy, that trip. I mean, it was amazing. And it was right. You know, right after Woodstock and we were kids, you know, I was about to go into junior high school and, you know, Route 66, there were still some pieces of it. They hadn't torn everything up. So it was really interesting. It was it was a it was an interesting thing. And my mom's a badass. I got to give her credit for like packing us up and just trying. But we out we out we just totally beat her down, made her come back to Brooklyn. We're like, no, we are not having this. (laughs) So, so the coffee house didn't work out. No, she never opened the club. I, I think she felt that we were right. We were miserable. So she came back and kept running clubs in the village in New York. Thank goodness. She must have been a serious badass, right? To do that in 1969, where you have all these messages from our culture saying, don't do it. I mean, even the attempt is kind of heroic. Yeah, I know. I know. It was pretty, and that was only, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, she'd been in the clubs for a lot of years by then. But I mean, yeah, she was pretty amazing with stuff. And, you know, it's funny because who knows how our life would have turned out. It would have been very different. I don't know how, you know, which way I would have gone being on the West Coast. You know, it's just funny when, you know, it's all these small little decisions that you make and these big decisions that you make. And then, Everything, you know, is changed, you know, like all the way down the road. You can't really see it. Sometimes it scares me in a way. It's like such a small little move, you know, like uh, even sometimes, oh, I didn't step off the curb. And then all of a sudden a car comes barreling by, you know, it's like sometimes it seems so random. I know it isn't, but it really does feel that way sometimes. It really is quite remarkable that you and your mother and your sister were brought to that very particular place and it involved of course the soundtrack of the Beatles it is it is but I mean my first album that I requested from my mom you know I I, I exhausted her records I was you know six probably was you know whatever that album was meet the Beatles I think with the umbrella whatever it was whatever the first album that I became aware of I think it was that one and I was like, get me that record. You know, it was like first album. <laughs> we demanded that album. And that was like the beginning. Very long love affair. <laughs> so by the time you got to um, you got to your Abbey Road car experience in 1969, you were pretty fluent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, right before that was a 
Sergeant Pepper, we woodshedded that, you know, what the, the winter before we left, you know, and I always get mixed up. I think the white album for us might have come after we came back from Brooklyn, from California. I can't remember, but those three albums were just, you know, I mean, all of them, Rubber Soul, you know, I mean, we, they all, it's, it was an, it was amazing to go on their journey with them, you know, their musical journey, because it was really, you know, just great songs, but then they really kind of just went into their lives and, and experimented with like, you know, George Martin. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I count myself. Yeah. I'm really glad that I grew up when I did. I'll just say that. Is there a place in your music where you can, when you think about it, or even your origin story as a musician, where their journey had a, an impact or was a catalyst or something? I mean, I just feel like, you know, when, when my sister and I saw the movie Help and then the other one, there were two, A Hard Day's Night and Help, it was just, I mean, I don't know. I don't remember thinking, you know, I just was totally in love with all of them. And although I didn't want my mom to marry them, I wanted my mom to marry Elvis Presley. I remember that was very clear. Elvis was supposed to, I think I wanted to marry one of the Beatles myself. So I wasn't offering her up to the Beatles. And I knew Elvis was older than the Beatles. But I would say that there was just such impact, such a strong musical impact. It was something that my sister and I bonded over. You know, we didn't, we had a pretty tumultuous childhood. So a lot of times we were kind of at odds. So for me, I, I feel like the Beatles were the thing that we really connected over and sang together all the time and tried to figure out how to play on guitar and stuff like that. So I didn't have like some major, they're, they're just in there. They're, it's, it's sort of like when I cut, you know, Ode to Billy Joe on this new record. That's a song again from, you know, even before that, when I was, you know, nine or something, nine or ten, and I'm like that song struck such a chord in me that I know that it's one of the building blocks of, you know, without, you know, the unconscious building blocks that we have. And there's got to be a lot of Beatle blocks in there because it's just what I listen to so much. So it's in there without my knowing it. You know, it's like it's unconscious, but it's there. So it's indecipherable in that way. I believe so. Yeah, I do. Uh huh. And, you know, it's funny because I'm so, you know, I've been around a lot of famous people, a lot of, you know, I've met a ton of people in the world and I've had the pleasure of meeting um, and hanging out with Paul McCartney and, you know, like, so when we, and, but, you know, I forget sometimes it's like, oh, he's still on Mary's dad and, or he's friends with my friends. And I, you know, would find myself sitting there talking to him and forgetting that it was him, you know? And so we did a gig out in Long Island where I am right now at this little club called Stevens Talk House. And Paul was, you know, was supposed to come to the show I had heard, but he didn't come. He had a big clam bake with his family out here or whatever. I also feel like every, he said to me, every time I go to a show, I feel like I have to get up on stage, which is kind of tough, you know? I feel for him in a way that he can't just go and, like, he feels like he has to do it, you know, or, or something. So anyway... We went to my friend's house, and his phone started ringing. They had a little party for us after the show, and his phone started ringing. And my and my guitar player Cliff at the time he looked down. And he goes, uh, "I think Paul McCartney's calling you." <laughs> <laughs> so my friend picks up the phone, and 
says, hey, come over, you know, Patty Smythe is here with her band, and they just did a show, blah, blah, blah. And so Paul McCartney came over with his wife, Nancy, who's really lovely, and my band was, like, it was like watching kindergarten kids. They were, and, and I remembered, you know what I mean? It's like, this is freaking Paul McCartney, and this was a big, huge deal. And he's such a lovely guy, you know, that he talked bass with my bass player, Tom Welsh, and guitar, I mean, it just was... I think it might have been like really the highlights of their lives was to, because all, everybody, again, you know, was so influenced by them. So that was a pretty great, that was a great moment to have. So for me and, and to, and to re remember, you know, like this, you know, this is a, a pretty big deal and I'm pretty grateful just to be able to, to, you know, let my band meet them. I mean, that they just were, you know, it was a real, really wonderful night. And a, and a sweet thing for him to do. Well, I sure hope you know that your songs have had that kind of effect, too. I vividly remember being in high school and playing Goodbye to You really loud, <laughs> <laughs> really loudly uh, during a breakup or after a breakup, not during the breakup. That would have been interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. I You don't know the kind of letters I got about that song. I like to say, you know, like I write divorce songs. I don't write wedding songs <laughs> for whatever reason. You know, most of my songs are like, see ya. I don't, I don't know, or, or sad. So it'd be nice. Maybe one day I'll write like some epic, you know, happy love song. <laughs> when did you start writing songs? What was the, the beginning of that story for you? I think Zach Smith and Scandal. I, I started writing songs with Goodbye to You, but because I didn't know, you know, what writing songs was, I didn't really get credit on that song. But I, it wasn't a finished song. And we needed a single. And so I found, you know, like some words that were in a pile. I said, what is this? And he played me the riff and then we finished the song. And that became our single, funnily enough. So that's really the first song. Oh. <laughs> I wrote. Yeah. So where, you know, I got in it, you know, just finished it. It just wasn't finished. And um, and then I, he really did try to get me to write more than I wanted to. You know, I was just interested in singing in the beginning, I think maybe, maybe I was a little afraid, but I always wrote poetry. I always read poetry. I always wrote in a diary. I mean, so I, I wrote prose, but I, I didn't think of it because I didn't play an instrument well enough. I didn't know that I could write just by singing melodies and, you know, figuring the chords out later, which is how I do it now. But, um, but anyway, so did I answer the question? I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, you sure did. And that's when I started with him. I mean, he really would incur, you know, he just wanted to write and he wanted to write with me. And so I'd say the warrior record, I, you know, that was a big, I have a lot of input in those songs. And, uh, I guess that was the beginning, but I think I really hit my stride when I wrote sometimes love to stand up, you know, when I wrote that song, that was like, my kid was 18 months old or something. So it was like 87. I think that's when I like, I don't know what happened when I got in that room with Glenn Burtnick, a New Jersey guy who didn't live too far from your school. You're absolutely right. Glenn Burtnick is a you know, member of the Weaklings and a great friend of Monmouth University here on the shore. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, he had a that dum 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 or whatever the changes was. I don't think it was that because I think Roy came up with that that synth part. But whatever musical changes he had rolling around in his head, we were trying to write a rock song, and I, he I forgot it was his birthday, and they came in and interrupted us to give him a cake. He that was I thought we had just stop because we were tired of trying to write this rock song and then he sat down on the piano 
and started playing those changes. And I had the idea of, you know, there's a danger in loving somebody too much. And, you know, from just becoming a mom and we wrote that song. I mean, it just sort of fell out. And that song was one of those things where I was like, Oh, it was, it just, sometimes that happens. It's awesome. It doesn't happen that often, but they just fall out. And that was one of them. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's the thing you have to do as a writer too, because you know, when you're a mom and get all these freaking kids and a husband who's kind of high maintenance, you know, like you can get distracted really easily, you know, but when you've got something dogging you, you got to stick with it to finish it. And, you know, with that, at that point, I didn't really have that many distractions. I just had one kid, just me and her. So it was easier for me to stick with that. But I have to remember that, like, because it, it, it's sort of, if, if the song keeps going around and around in your head, it's doing it for a reason. It wants to get finished. <laughs> we'll be right back with Patty Smythe, who's going to tell us about another unbelievable moment when opportunity showed its hand. And that was the opportunity to perform with Van Halen. We'll be right back. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. We're back with Patty Smythe. Patty, I'm very intrigued by your work with various producers over the years, uh, and and very specifically with Mike Chapman, who produced many of the records that I know were the backbone of my childhood, records by Blondie, The Knack, and, and others. Can you tell me about what it was like working with him? I know he did Pat Benatar, too. Um, he was, it was great to work with him. I found, you know, he brought... Um, he brought the warrior to us and he, you know, he was, he was a very refreshing, but he was very strong personality, which for whatever reason, because I was strong personality, I was okay with, you know, he definitely called Zach on the carpet and totally, you know, asked him why no one in the band liked him. And I mean, he, he went, he really like, he basically like, you know, exacto, exacto knife, you know, all the points down to the bear, like, you know, we're going to make this record, but you're being an asshole, so stop being an asshole and, you know, that kind of stuff. And because he had worked with so many, so he like pushed out, he pushed Benjamin, I mean, he, he rearranged a lot of stuff because he's, he's a force. And a lot of it needed to be done. Some could have been done in, diff, you know, with a slightly lighter touch maybe, but I wanted to sing great for him because you know he had produced all these bands that I really liked and all these singers that I really liked and so that was a great feeling you know to like want to go in there every day and like and give it my best and and uh and make him know that I'm giving my best and have him like it which he did you know that's a good feeling it's an interesting thing people don't understand really what producers do but they're more like film directors not like, you know, they should be called it record directors, not record producers, because they really, you know, for me, I don't like anyone in the studio. I just like the producer there and maybe, and the engineer, I can tolerate the engineer and the producer because it's a personal thing where like, I'm going to try stuff and then, you know, I want some feedback. And I remember I went in, you know, over the last 28 years of not having a record, I've gone in a few times and tried to make a record. And I remember one guy saying to me, you know, I'm not a cheerleader. When I said, look, you have to give me some feedback. And he was like, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm like, I don't need a cheerleader. But, you know, when I'm singing the same riff 
every single time I take, I do a pass, you know, maybe just say, Hey, maybe you should mix it up. You know, like you need another mind in there who gets you and, you know, and just maybe says, Hey, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? You know? So that's what a producer does for a singer. And, and because he had worked with so many great people, you know, I just wanted to, and I did, I went balls to the walls on that record. I mean, so you know, I, I laid it all out. And it was because he was inspiring to me, which was great. That was a that was a that was a great singing experience. I was reading a quote from from the late Doug Figer about um, you know they called him Commander Chapman. He really had them, and they were obviously very young. He had really sort of taken over their chemistry, and but was unable to do their second album, which he cites as the beginning of the end for the Knack because they didn't have that person giving them this hardcore structure. Who knows with him because when he found out, you know, he really wanted to do the next record with me and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. Even though I loved singing with him, I kind of wanted to do something different, a little bit more organic, you know, less like kind of like so produced. So, and a little bit more, to be honest, like I wanted to have a little bit more like R&B feel like just more of a swing factor, you know, not just so like white rock. And then he said to me, no, I understand. I get it. You know, that, you know, I want to do it, you know, give me, let me have a shot at it. So I'm like, okay, all right, you know, I'll give you a shot at it. And then I found out I was pregnant and he stopped returning my phone calls. <laughs> so that's how he didn't do my next record. And, uh, I found out, you know, that he was upset that I was pregnant and that meant that I wasn't serious or whatever. So that's how that happened. Wow. You know, what you just said is such an interesting and thankfully lost artifact to time where someone would make a decision about your working with you because you, you, you know, or had a life decision that had taken place, a, a natural life choice of having, having a child. I mean, you know, think about then versus now, right? Yeah, but, you know, I mean... I think I think now it's weirdly trendy to have kids, you know? But, I mean, I think that was the case for a long time. You know, only more recently now it's like, you know, they make all these jokes. They will make how all these celebrities were adopting or whatever. But, you know, now it's uh, it's not – you're right. It's not such a, uh, a crazy thing to do, you know? Uh, they're way more used to – you know, I was, I was pretty young. I was still in my 20s, so maybe that was part of it. But you're right. I mean, there's so many singers with kids now, and they realize, you know, I mean, it certainly hasn't affected Pink and the way that she sings and, you know, whatever. But it's changed a lot. I mean, look, they would play one chip a week when I was out. In 1982, when I went to radio stations, that was the rule, one chip. So, you know, that, that definitely, I'm like, what? Like, you even, like... You know, does it matter if it's a chick or a guy? Well, it definitely mattered. That's pretty but staggering. That, seen, that's the biggest change I've seen. Thank God. Well, uh, and on the other issue, you know, you'd think the driving decision matrix would have been this last album we worked on together was a massive hit, <laughs> right? Instead yeah. of, um, oh, I see she's pregnant. I'm not going to work on this. That's really kind of amazing because today, not only are we, of course, more self-aware and more socially aware about equality and those issues, 
But I would think the fact the, the words massive hit would have been the driving matrix, right? Yeah, like, you know, he was very, you know, confident and arrogant. And, I, and you know, I think he had one more. I think he did Love is a Battlefield after that because I remember he was playing that for me too. But then, so maybe what came up was that, oh, he was going to give it to Pat Benatar. And so that was part of it. Or And I don't think he thought, of, you know, that I was going to write, you know. Uh, but the truth is, is like I'll be eternally grateful for that because, like I said, you know, things just happen the way they're supposed to happen. And I would probably not, would not have written sometimes love just saying enough. I would have been with another batch of writers or wherever I would have been, you know. Um, so he did me a favor and it's fine. And, you know, he, he didn't have a lot. I think after love, love is a battlefield, I don't know how much he did after that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that I followed him, but I don't think he did a whole lot. No, there is a drop-off for sure. How, how did you meet Glenn Burtnick? How did how did you come into that orbit and, and work together? Probably publishing company or a manager knew, and they just uh, suggested it, and I was open to trying, you know, writing with people. And uh, I, don't, I think that's how. It's funny, you know, who you say yes to, and serendipitously for both of us, you know, I was like, yeah, and he said, yeah. So, And, you know, you never know when you get into a room, what's going to happen. And it looked like before we sat down at the piano that nothing was going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, it, we were lucky and we've written some, we've written a lot of good songs together, Glenn and I, he doesn't like to write anymore. You know, I've got to like put a gun to his head. I've got to make him come and write with me. I, I think he just feels like, what's the point, which is kind of a bummer. But I mean, the point is you write because you can, you know, um, I wonder, you know, we were talking about the Beatles earlier. Um, you were certainly a hardcore fan, obviously, with your mother and sister doing that kind of serious listening party for a month. Um, you know, we're nearing the worst date on the Beatles calendar. Do you remember 1980 and, and where you yes, were? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I hate that day still. It's almost like I can't say it's as bad as 9-11, but it's such an awful moment in New York history, you know, like I was living in the East Village with my then boyfriend was with me. He lived in Philly, but he was staying with me. And it was all, the Christmas lights were already up all around in the Ukrainian bars and restaurants. And, um, and we were getting ready. We were going to go out to eat. And then it came on the radio, the news. So I, I remember that very specifically, who I was with, where I was. And then I remember being in Central Park, I guess it was the next day or two days later, and I just remember how quiet it was, and all you could hear was helicopters overhead. It was awful. In a way, I don't want to recall the date. I hate the guy. I hate that I knew his name. I purposely forgot the guy's name, because I think when people commit crimes like that, they shouldn't become infamous. They should just, there should be never a photograph or their name ever written or shown anywhere, so... That was a big tragedy. That was very shocking. It's still, even here 40 years later, it makes less sense to me every year. Uh, it's awful, I know. And I live not far from there, you know, like that's where I live. And it's like every time I, you walk by the building, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's never, never does it not cross your mind. It's always there. It's, it's weird. It's, it's really weird. But, and it was so completely senseless. senseless. It's not, I mean, it's just 
really crazy. Yeah, that it's just it will never make sense to us. I, I've when I walk by that archway, I can't talk. You know, my throat closes. I got to ask about you know, twenty twenty has been just a god awful year in so many ways, and then we get the news last week about Eddie Van Halen. You were pretty close friends, right? Yeah, we were close friends, you know, but we hadn't um, we hadn't you know really seen each other in a long time. I saw him. When was it, like 2014 or something like that in uh, in New York when him and David Lee Roth, they did a show at like this club and uh, they were getting back together. I hadn't really been in touch with him for a while, you know. Um, I don't know how that happened. It just happened, you know, like, like your life changes. I moved back to New York, blah, blah, blah. And But he, um, but it was terrible because, you know, I was doing all this press about and people kept asking me about him asking me to, you know, be in the band. And because, you know, people haven't had the opportunity to ask me that. So it got asked a lot in the last few months. And then little did I know that he was so ill. And then he passed away. And I just felt terrible. I mean, I just felt terrible that we had been talking about it or whatever. You know, just, I just feel really sad. I mean, he's, he's such a great just such an incredible player, but such a really warm, sweet, just a, just a good person, just a good guy, you know, just trying to find his way. I mean, he, he I watched something on on YouTube the other day about the American dream. They, they somewhere in California, they had him and they interviewed him about, you know, his, his family was the American dream story. And it's such a great story because his mother was Indonesian, his father was Dutch and they were, I mean, it's, it's unreal. And his father was a musician, a great musician. And so it was nice to just hear him talk about that. You know, I mean, he told me a lot about it. I knew, you know, we spoke a lot right after his father died. And, you know, I was always trying to sort of help him in any way I could as far as, you know, trying not to have him, whatever, you know, whatever troubles he was having. But it really devastated him when his dad died. So, I mean, I... I, I think his mom is still alive. I'm not even sure, but it's just it's just very sad for Valerie, for his now wife and for his son. So it's just a, it's just a big loss. If you were if you were going to explain to a non musician what made him a great guitarist, you know, non musician would say, "Well, I really loved Eruption." You know, <laughs> how would you how would you explain it? Luckily, I watched that that, that interview because. What he, you know, like uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And he was classically trained as a piano player because his father was a musician. His mother wanted them to be classic, you know, thought, was smart enough to know that music would probably keep them out of trouble. They were two boys. They both played. And then they started entering competitions and winning. And so he, they probably brought home some extra money that way. And then I guess, I think it was, uh, he wanted to play drums and he bought a drum set. And then one day he came home and I guess, I guess Alex got a guitar and he came home and Alex was playing the drums and he was playing the drums well, and he had been failing at the drums. So he said, Oh, maybe I'll try the guitar and he gets the guitar. And then he wants to do all these things on this guitar he has, but he can't. So he starts inventing and he literally did invent various pickups, which I don't know the name of them now. And he said, I ruined a bunch of really good guitars trying to figure out because I didn't have the money for the pedals, you know, like because everybody had pedals to create all these sounds. And he liked the whammy bar on the fender 
And so he needed to make the fender do. Like him and Les Paul have a lot in common, you know, uh, interestingly enough. So for me, the way that he just came out of complete left field and just did something, it's, it's sort of like Hendrix, you know, like a completely different instrument it became in the hands of Jimi Hendrix and in the hands of Eddie Van Halen. And even though he loved, you know, Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck, you know, they were just sort of straight ahead playing it. He said in this interview, well, you know, after a while, I, you know, I had seen enough of, uh, of Eric Clapton. He was great, but, you know, that wasn't moving me anymore. And he, interesting like me, didn't listen to a lot of music. Like, I, you know, after a certain point, I just stopped listening to music. It just was like, I, I got music out. And I think when you're writing and playing all the time, when you stop, you don't want to listen to music. You kind of just want to hear the silence. And it was funny because he said that also. But, mm -hmm. I mean, the answer to the question is, like I said, he created, it, it, he may as well, and, and basically did create a whole new instrument. So, well, then I got to ask, I would have loved a uh, uh, Patty Smythe Van Halen. Uh, why, why did you go in a different direction? I mean, again, you know, I called this record It's About Time because it's about time I put out a record, and it's kind of a record about time. But, you know, timing is so important in life. And at the time that he said to me, I have to know, I was eight months pregnant, and in New York and had a plan for my next record. You know, I was deeply entrenched with my label, my the next record. I just got married. And the thought of, you know, I was like, I will never move to California. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have a home in California. I've spent, you know, a lot of time there since 1990. I, I did move there, you know, like five years later or something. But um, at that time, I was like, I can't move to California and like just blow up my life. I can't do it. Like, and I, and I think my mindset was just, I got to hunker down and have this kid. And I think that was the reason I, and it's semantics too. I think if he said, why don't you just make a record, come out with me, let's make a record, let's see what happens. And then I could have gone out there for a few months. That would have been like, I have to move to California and I have to change everything in my life. And I just, I didn't want to, I was very flippant in a way and you know impulsive i said no you know, like i didn't even pause so i was like no i don't think so and believe me i regretted that you know over the for a few years or i was like what the hell is wrong with you why didn't you even think it through you know they're having all this massive giant tour and you know and hit records and i was like damn it but then you know what again it's like it just works out the way it's supposed to work out they made a good record with Sammy, and I went on my road again to write "Sometimes Love" and "No Mistakes." All these songs that I'm really proud of, and I'm and I wouldn't have written. You know, would I have loved to have made a record with him at the very least? Absolutely, and I wish that we had. But you know, again, it's just timing. You know, and let's be honest. I mean, you had officially rejected California back in 1969. <laughs> yes, I had. You had said no. That is exactly right. And I was holding to my guns, sticking to my guns on that one. I just was like, no. And, you know, they fought all the time, the brothers and stuff. And I just was like, you know, you know, when you're literally that heavy with child and I was close to giving birth, you know, it's like you're, you know, you, you're just thinking, I need, you know, to be in a quiet place right now or whatever. You know, it just wasn't. You're not even thinking right when you're pregnant. You're slightly, you know, 
handicapped mentally when you're pregnant. So there were, there were, you know, I have to take that into consideration too. Well, Patty, Van Halen or not, we've all been very fortunate to share your musical de- journey over these last few decades. Thanks for being today's guest on Everything Fab Four. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>